Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning service to you each and every week. Whether you're a longtime follower of Christ or just beginning to explore who Jesus is, we invite you to join us as we dive deep into God's Word and what He has to teach us today. So listen in as we jump into what God has in store. Good morning, Rolling Hills Church family. Welcome to all of our campuses today. We are so thankful for all that God's been doing in this series. We've been in this series called Live in Love, talking about our relationships, our marriages, or our dating relationship, and how are we growing. And each week in this series, you've heard from a different couple in our church uh, on our staff team. And today, I want you to hear from Chase and Courtney Baker. And uh, many of you guys know Chase is our family pastor here at Rolling Hills and just an amazing man of God. And they're an awesome couple together. And so Chase, Courtney, thank you so much for sharing today. And uh, tell us a little bit about how did you guys meet? That's a great uh, story. We actually met in elementary school. So we were in fifth grade. We went to the sixth grade dance together. And we actually have a picture of a sixth grade dance of you really can't see me because Courtney looks like a giant next to me <laughs> because I just, I haven't grown into my own yet. We have not been together since sixth grade. We have not been together because since sixth Chase grade. Because Chase made a very critical error and broke up with me immediately after the sixth grade dance. Yes, yeah, so that, that was the end. Yeah, so we were, I mean, we still were friends and we went to church together, we went to school together and her senior year of college, she came back and I was in a wedding and really, I mean, you saw this handsome man <laughs> up there with a tuxedo on. You're like, that's the guy I'm going to marry. And then the rest is history. That's how Full disclosure, I did think he does look a lot cuter than he used to look, and, you know, but it did start a friendship that yeah. slowly turned into much more over time, which was a great foundation for a marriage. Yeah. What is your biggest joy and what's your biggest challenge you think in marriage? For us, it's been wonderful to experience new things together. Chase plays golf. So I decided, you <laughs> know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take golf lessons so that we can go do golf together. Like recently I've gotten into gardening and Chase helped me build beds for my gardening. We've we done boxing classes together. We've done all kinds of things where it's just fun to experience these new things together and kind of this emphasis of like, hey, if you're interested in something, like I'm gonna try to like lean in and just see, I may not love golf because um, it frustrates me so much, Jeff. I don't understand. That's us too. What are y'all doing with golf? <laughs> like what? I don't get it. But it's just been so wonderful over time to continue to develop things that we're interested in and, and what we learned together through that. And we just had a lot of fun, honestly. On the challenging side, I would say uh, communication has always been the hardest part. And obviously that changes in different seasons. Some seasons are harder and easier. You know, right now we have two small children. We both have 
full-time careers. So there's a lot of factors at play that make it even harder. You know, it's like every time that you think, you know what, we're doing so great at community, you know, we're really in sync. And then something happens and you're out of sync and then you have to just yeah. keep working towards that. And continuing to see, you know what, I was made in the image of God and it's wonderful and good. And he is also made in the image <laughs> of God and it's wonderful and good. And you know, just learning that is challenging and, and wonderful. Yeah. How do you keep Jesus at the center of your marriage? That's such a great question. And I, I would say that it's easy, like it's really not. It's something that, you know, we, we don't wake up each day and say, man, this is glorious. Like we don't, have, this is so easy for us. It's a battle to keep Jesus at the center. We can't just assume Jesus is just gonna be there. We have to fight for it. And so a couple ways, I feel like practically we've done that over time. I, I say pray for one another, but more specifically that, know specifically how to pray for the other person. I've had to learn over time how to communicate needs and emotions to be able to best pray for one another. The second thing I would say, like, just do our best to talk about Jesus. Mm. What is God doing in your life? You can't keep Jesus at the center of your marriage if you never talk about him. Mm. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's a hey, let's, let's find moments throughout the week to talk about Jesus, talk about Jesus to others and, and to our kids. And, and as a family unit, just talk about Jesus. And I would say the last thing might be the most difficult, serve one another, um, being intentional with it. And what we found is not just serve one another, but serve others as well. Make that a part. It, Courtney does an incredible job serving um, at the eight o'clock service with the preschoolers um, and just make that a common, a conversation in our in our lives because the reality is the serving what we believe connects us not only to one another it connects us to Jesus and so we look at Jesus's life and one of the things he, he expresses is serve other people and and this is the we have to let go of our wants and our desires and sometimes in order to best serve to be able to go low in order to elevate the other person I think that's a large part of what marriage is. And as difficult it is, sometimes we gotta let go of our, our desires and our wants and go low in order to elevate your spouse. Thank you guys so much for sharing, man. We just love you personally, just love your heart and uh, the way you love each other. And your marriage is contagious to all of us here at Rolling Hills. So thank you for sharing today. You guys can give it up for Chase and Courtney, and I'll, I'll tell him tomorrow or later this afternoon that we did. Um, known Chase for all 13 years that he's been on staff at Rolling Kills, and he very quickly became one of my closest friends in the world. So the, the fortunate life that I get to live is to go to work with some of my very best friends. One of the ways that we pick on Chase, and we pick on him often, um, almost like a little brother, is that for years and years and years, a lot of us around the office have called him the perfect man. And you would think that that's not picking. He, it annoys him. He can't stand it. But we do, because he's just good at lots of things. Great at sports, woodworking. His dad taught him how to do basically everything in life. There's nothing he can't fix. And so we joke all the time that Chase is, oh, this perfect man. And some of the, like, yeah, yeah, he isn't. And Courtney calls me up one day and she was like, listen, this perfect man that y'all get so excited about, he didn't come out of a box that way. I put my dues in. And that's 
Behind every good man is a really great woman, and so Courtney's fantastic, and we're thrilled for them. As we come on the edge of this series, we do want to celebrate the idea of legacy, and as it points to a couple things, we've used marriage as an illustration, and we've wanted to, as a church, lean into that a little bit, because we know that marriage is important. We know that not everybody in the room is married. Not everybody in the room is looking to get married. Some people in the room used to be married and are glad you're not married anymore. We understand, but what we do want to say in this moment is that it's been an opportunity to celebrate and highlight the good gift that God gave us in marriage. It's not the only, it's not the best, it's not the most exclusive way to share the love of Christ with the world, but it's a way. And it's an illustration. We talked about Ephesians chapter 5. God says, hey, here's this man, here's this woman. I'm putting them together. The two will become one flesh, and the man will lay down his life for the woman, and the woman will respect. Like, there's this whole picture of the gospel, and Paul says, hey, I don't want you to be confused about this. I'm literally talking about Christ in the church. So we do know that marriage is supposed to be, on its best day, an illustration for the way that God loves us and gave himself up for us. And even the best marriages are always going to pale in comparison to the gospel. They're always going to pale in comparison to the way that God loves us. They're always going to come just a little bit short. They should point us to the gospel and the goodness of God and the gift that he gave us, but fall just enough short to make us long for something better than our marriages. I do want to celebrate today the milestones that happen because it's good. So anybody in the room um, that's been married for five or more years, um, just kind of go ahead. I'm not going to make you stand. Just go ahead and raise your hands. We'll celebrate that for a minute. Anybody at that five-year mark? Congratulations. Way to go. We got another couple I talked to this morning. They're hitting the eight-year mark. That's exciting. All right, so, you know, keep the hands high. Five years, you've made it. Keep them high. All right, ten years, keep them up. We're clearly going in multiples of five, which is really the only birthdays that count after the age of 30. And so five, you've made it 10 years. That's an awesome way to go. Any 15-year people in the house? Yes, I've made it to the 15-year mark myself. There we go. All right, 20 years. Who's made it past the 20 mark? I can keep my hand up on this one because this year is 24 for us, but now i got to slide it down. 25? 25 years? That's incredible. All right, I'm going to jump it up. We're going to go. 30 years, 40 years. We just celebrated a really important 30th wedding anniversary with you guys, which was exciting. 40 years? Yes, I love it. Any 50-year marriages in the house? In August, congratulations. That's incredible. Hollis, you made it too. What a joy it is to celebrate that good gift. And if we were to interview any of them, y'all come on up, we've got some questions for you. We want to know the secret. Um, they would all tell us that it's the Lord and, and that they came, just like Chase and Courtney, just like me and Susan, just like anybody in the room, they came to an altar as dirty, rotten sinners, selfish, hoping that they would get something great out of this equation that they were entering into and realized really quickly that the only way to make it last is to enter into a life of sacrifice together. One of my favorite quotes, Chase and I both like this guy, Reggie Joyner. He's an incredible pioneer in family ministry and the way that we do children and students and the way that we lead into a legacy with parenting. He says this, an inheritance is something you leave for someone. Some of y'all are like, inheritance? That sounds real good. Well, sounds good to me too. But he says, a legacy is something you leave in someone. And see, a legacy is not the financial gift that comes from the losing of a loved one. It's not the inheritance that some people are looking for in life. A legacy is actually something that lasts. When we talk about this idea of love, what we want to say about love and the way that we love other people, not just our spouses, but the way that we love all people, is not just an action. 
Love isn't just an action, D.C. Talk famously saying in the 1990s that love is a verb, and it is. It's supposed to be an action, but it's not just an action. It's ultimately an ethos. It's the entire ethic of the way that we live. It's the descriptor that's used to describe people who are in Christ. It's supposed to encompass everything that we do, everything that we say, and just the overall feeling that somebody else gets from being around us. Minutes with you ought to equate For anybody outside this room, the idea that they are a human being created in the image of God who is dearly loved. Like just being around you ought to exude that feeling from somebody else in the world, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a child, whether it's a person that you work with, a friend, no matter who it is, even strangers ought to get that feeling from just some sort of interaction with you, that indescribable moment where they just can't help but feel loved. Jesus In John chapter 13, that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today, and you can turn there. We'll go to the end of it first and then back to the beginning. It says in John 13, 34, a new command I give you. And ultimately, Jesus wasn't giving them a new command. He was highlighting an old command, the idea that they love one another. He had already exclaimed to a guy who was an expert in the law, hey, what's the most important command? Oh, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the most important thing. It was given to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, and you ought to do that above anything else. And then Jesus gave him a bonus. He slid in there, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And then he told a story so that there'd be no confusion about who your neighbor is. It's everybody. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus, walking with these disciples for a period of years, says to them on the eve that he was going to be arrested and ultimately tried and then convicted and crucified, he says to them a new command, a highlighted command. The most important command I leave for you is this. Love one another. I need you guys to love each other. And then he goes, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so if there's any sort of question about the way that we're supposed to love one another, like, oh, well, how do you want me to love these people, God? I want you to love them the way that I loved you. As, we're going to go over that sentence over and over and over again. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And he says in verse 35, by this, everyone, all those neighbors, all those strangers, all people everywhere, by this, everyone will know what? That you're my disciples. How? If you love one another. And that's why this matters in word and in deed it's what Jesus said and it's what he did and it's the ethos that he brought into the world this ethic of love do we have any Andy Griffith fans in the house tell me you're old without telling me you're old I love it I've seen every episode I don't know how many times and we have raised our children up in the idea of the Andy Griffith show there are lots of episodes and I wish I could have found one with Ernest T. Bass because those are my favorite to kind of quote this morning but there's not there's this one with a couple named Fred and Jenny they're only in one episode and they're married and they just have these knockdown, drag out fights people in the neighborhood are listening to crazy yelling and screaming and throwing and breaking that's happening it's like this is call the cops kind of situation and so they reach out to Andy and Barney and they go to their house and he realizes that locking them up or giving them a citation is not going to work Andy decides to play armchair therapist which we celebrate the idea of going to therapy it is so good and so if that for your marriage or for your life is something that you need. We have a counseling director at our church, and she's wonderful, and she would love nothing more than to hear from you. Let's fill up her inbox with people from the West Nashville campus who recognize the need to sit down across with someone, a professional, to say, hey, this is what's going on in my life. This is what I want to unpack in my life. This is what's important to me now. This is what my goals are, and she can resource you, help you find a counselor that's good for you to meet with. I go, I want you to be 
in complete and full knowledge that there are resources. We don't want anybody to get to a Category 5 hurricane in their lives, whether it's as a couple or an individual or any other situation, without raising their hand and saying, I need support. Specifically for marriage, we've left cards scattered around the room, and there's a whole stack of them over here. You can scan the QR code and see all of the resources that are offered for married couples, but it will send you straight to Kathy. So even if it's not marriage help that you need, if it's just an opportunity to process what's going on in your life, use a QR code. Reach out to her. Let her be a resource for you. That's what Andy Griffith was doing in this one episode with Fred and Jenny. He made them come into the courthouse one morning, and he sat down and did an exercise with them where he made them talk nicely to one another. And he told Fred that he had to say, morning, honey, and that Jenny had to say, morning, dear, and they didn't like it at all. And so over and over and over again, you've got this couple that are sitting there going, morning, dear. It just didn't sound very loving. And then, morning, honey. It didn't sound very loving. And if you continue to watch the episode, they eventually got better at being nice to each other. But as they got nicer to each other, they got meaner to everybody else. <laughs> and what they realized is that, hey, they just needed one person to be mean to. And as long as it was their spouse, they could be nice to everybody else in the world. That's not how it works. Um, this marriage that we've been given, the relationships that we're in, in order to be a picture of the gospel, people are supposed to not only hear good, wonderful things, but they have to be delivered in a kind and loving manner. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it that brings an ethic of love into the world. A better question than the idea of legacy is one that Andy Stanley asks. He says this, he's been saying it for a while, some people are mad at him for it, what does love require of me? What does the fact that I've been loved by God and, and I've been called and commanded to love others what's the requirement? You walk into any sort of situations. We had bracelets back in the 90s, and they've actually made a comeback, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And we wore them as a reminder of how we were supposed to react in a situation and how we were supposed to speak out into the world and the things that we were supposed to do and the ways that we were supposed to respond. Here's the same question, just worded a different way. What does love require from me? You see, the command to love that Jesus gave this idea of like a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you should love one another. That command that he gave was in a specific context. The command to love that Jesus made came directly after the demo, the demonstration that Jesus gave. If you go back to the beginning of that chapter in John 13, not long before he said these words, it says in verse 1, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Now, there's something special about Jesus in that moment, and this is just his Jesusness. Like, he knew that he was about to die. He knew exactly what was coming. Not many people are given that opportunity to know when the end is about to come. We talk about the idea of legacy, and Reggie Joyner did us a favor in that, too. He came up with something called Legacy Marbles. And they actually sell these for just three installments of night. I'm just kidding. Um, this is, or it was, 936 tiny little marbles. Um, and it's sold as a kit to parents, or you can just go buy any old ordinary marble, or really only 936 things. It's 936 weeks when you have a child before their 18th birthday. Do the math. I didn't check him. I'm just trusting that he's being honest. 936 weeks until a child turns 18. 
and you take a marble out one week at a time, and then you begin to see just how little time is left before they enter out into the world of adulthood. In the second service today, many of you know them, Craig and Jenny Schumann, they're two of our core team volunteers in student ministry, and they've been with us for several years now. They had a baby last year named Rowan, sweet little baby boy, seven months old. And so he's at 905 weeks now. Because he's 31 weeks old, he's got, they've got 905, 904, something like that left until Rowan turns 18 in the world. So there's, there's a lot of marbles left. We're going to have a family dedication service during the second hour. I looked at my kids and their marbles. My middle turned 16 last week. We have 103 weeks until she turns 18. I was going to do this with my oldest because she's 17, and it made me too sad. So we went with the second kid instead. You tend to do more with the time you have now when you know how much time you have left. Jesus knew, hey, it's, it's minutes, it's hours coming that I have left with these guys. Until we get to the end of our life, if we're given some sort of scary gift of knowing that the end is near, we won't realize how much time we have left. You don't know how much time you have left with your spouse. I'm 45 years old. I've been married for 24 years. I would love to make it to 50, but I'm not promised tomorrow. So Susan needs to know how much I love her today. I've been gifted with 17 years with the oldest, 16 years with the middle, 11 years with the little boy, 10 years with one precious golden doodle and only one with the other. I love them so much. Like today is the day that I need to show them all how much I love them because I'm not promised tomorrow. I don't know how long my neighbors will be next door. We may move, they may move, one of us could die. I don't know how much time is left. So I want to make the most of the time I have now. That's leaving a legacy. Jesus knew, hey, the hour is coming. This is what I want to leave them with. And he chose to talk about the idea of love. So just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. There's the ethic. These guys could have questioned anything that they wanted to about the future, any of their understanding of what was going to happen in the next 72 hours, any of the purpose that he had given them in the world to plant a church and to spread his gospel. But the one thing that they could not doubt because of the way that Jesus lived is the fact that they were loved. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil, ooh, got to bring him into the story, had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that the that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. Like he knew the authority that he'd been given, yet he was the one that got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. Jesus gave this picture of what it means to truly love someone. And if you understand the reason why the gospel writer John highlighted Judas in this moment, you'll know that what Jesus was doing was effectively removing any loophole from our lives for conditional love. 
Judas got his feet washed too. The guy that was in the middle of betraying Jesus and handing him over logistically to the death that was going to take him from this world and make him the savior of all of us, that guy got his feet washed too. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas and put it into his heart that he was going to betray Jesus. And yet Jesus, towel around his waist, on his knees, loved and washed Judas's feet too. In Romans 5 8, Paul gives us these words that God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still saying he didn't make wait for us to get it right he didn't wait to wash the good guy's feet once judas left the room while we are still sinners christ died for us while we're caught red-handed while he knows full well the bad that we've done the bad that we're doing and the bad that we will do he died for us there's no greater picture of love and that's the biggest part of the command that's the biggest part of the command and that sacrifice that Jesus made for their lives and that humble position that he put himself just before, they became the biggest trump card in the whole deck. It's the sacrificial way that he lived his life to love them well. And that's the ethic. That's the feeling that people are supposed to get around us. They're supposed to feel served. They're supposed to feel loved. They're supposed to feel that it cost us something. They're supposed to feel like we humbled ourselves before them. They're supposed to feel that love. Why? Because Jesus says, as I have loved you. Here's your example, friends. There's no loophole for conditional love. As I have loved you, this is how you're supposed to love other people. Luke chapter 7 there's a moment in Jesus' ministry where he had come into the house of a prominent leader and a woman somehow got into the mix and she was a woman that had been forgiven quite a bit from the life that she had lived and she, she comes in and she finds Jesus and she breaks a very expensive bottle of perfume and she washes his feet and she anoints him with that perfume and she dries it up like her, cry, her tears are washing his feet and she's drying it up with her long hair. Some of the disciples and the, the religious leaders in the room, they're like indignant. Well, like, well, one, we could have sold that bottle of perfume and given it to the poor. So don't you think that would have been? And Jesus stops them in them and says, look at how she's loved. And then he tells a story. It's in, John chapter, I mean, it's in Luke chapter 7 for us. He tells this story about these debtors. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. He said, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owned, owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Well, that's clearly a different amount. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus said, you have judged correctly. And so I look at my own life, and I look at the lives of my family, and, and we ought to all look at our lives and say, maybe we don't love as much as we should or in the way that we should because we think we're better than we actually are. Here's a news flash for all of us. It does not take more blood. We're going to celebrate communion together in a, in a few moments. We do that at the close of every sermon series. 
the two elements that were given to represent the sacrifice that Jesus made, uh, a tiny little, it's gluten-free for anybody that has concerns, wafer, and it reminds us of the broken body of Jesus, and then a tiny little bit of juice, not fermented unless it was in the package for too long, but don't hold that against us. Okay, tiny little bit of juice to remind us of the blood that he shed, and here's what we have to know today. It does not take more blood to cover the sins of the axe murderer than it does the basketball coach. I'll I'll, I'll put it on terms that a lot of us are going to understand and hear a whole lot more about this year. It doesn't take more blood, more effort, more pain, more sacrifice for Jesus to cover the sins of the doctor who performed the abortion than it did the soccer mom who carried to full term. It takes the same amount for all of us. And unless we're a people who remember that we have been forgiven much, we won't be a people who love with this kind of ethic. We can put it in context that any of us would understand. It was not less of a sacrifice for Jesus to die for me than anybody in this room or anybody outside of this room. If legacy is the thing that lasts, the thing that we're known for, the thing that we want to be a reminder of to other people in the world, if if legacy is what lasts, then what do we do when we don't love? There there ought to be an antithesis to that verse. I think it's uh, uh, implied for us. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he says, by this, everybody will know that you are my disciples if you love one another one another. Well, there's the indicator. That's great news. Like, it's, it's, it's not going to be our t-shirts that we wear, or our jewelry that we wear, or the songs that we sing, or the words that we say, or the way that we look, or the bumper stickers that we put on our cars. It's not going to be the way that you vote, even though some people think it is, and it's not going to be the words that we do or don't say. It's the way we love one another that's supposed to make us so decidedly different in the world. The way that believers in Jesus love one another and others ought to be so different from what people can get anywhere else in the world that it makes them marvel and say, whoa, those people are really following Jesus. Those people are really his disciples. And when they see that in us, they give him all of the credit for being such a good leader that we follow him that Well, when we love like Jesus, he gets all of the credit. Y'all, I love it when my children help at home without being asked. And it really does happen. I'm proud of y'all. Thank you. You do a good job. High five. But you know what I'm even more excited about? When other people tell me that they're helpful. Like when they get back from camp and one of their leaders just says, gosh, they're just so respectful and so helpful. I'm just like, whew. Like, whew. If it just, it just, it's that feel-good moment. It may be a prideful thing, and I apologize if it is, but it just, it just makes you feel good. When they go to somebody else's house, they spend time with your parents, they go somewhere else, and, and you get a, when you, as a parent, you get a compliment back on how your children behaved or the way that they responded. It just makes you feel so, so good. Like, it, it just feels good in that moment. And, and you take, and it's not really yours, but you take a little bit of credit for that. And it's, I know it's bad, it's arrogant, I shouldn't do it, but, like, I love it when they do that because it just feels good. Like, when we love other people, we have a heavenly Father who's going, it just feels good. 
when we, we, we offer ourselves sacrificially and humbly to the world, it just feels good. But we have to do another kind of deep dive to figure out what's the opposite of this. If it says by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Does it stand to reason then that people will doubt that we are disciples if we fail to love one another? Yes, but not only. Like if we don't love each other well, people will probably question whether or not we are in fact Christ followers. Whether or not we are Christians. But it's more than that. Because if it was just that, then okay, whatever but it's not. How we love is infinitely more critical than we think. If we love other people really well, they get to know that we are his disciples. If we fail to love others well, they will certainly question whether or not we are disciples, but it's more than that. Because when Christ's followers love poorly or don't love at all, we're not just discredited as disciples, we're ultimately discrediting Jesus. People do not just lose faith in the church. They don't just lose faith in church people. They might reject faith in Christ. Oh, this matters. Because Jesus had a lot to say about people who make little ones stumble. I don't want to be the thing that stands in the way of somebody else seeing how much God loves them. And when we fail to love, we're not just discredited as disciples. We're discrediting Jesus in people's eyes. They don't just lose faith in the church. They reject faith in Christ. And it's not just a local church that gets a bad reputation. It's the big church that loses even more influence in the world when you and I, right here in 615 Nashville, Tennessee, when we fail to love the people outside of this room with the love as Jesus commanded us to love them with, then ultimately, we're discrediting the church around. Who's heard of the word church hurt? It's a buzzword. And people are talking about the ways that they've been hurt by churches. And it's not just the church, that specific church that they rejected. It's not just those specific church people that they walked away from. In so many cases, it's walking away from Jesus. And we bear the weight of that. And sometimes we're, we're doing the rebuilding project in somebody's life when they come in and they are very hesitant to experience love here because they've been hurt so badly somewhere else. We have a lot of work to do to build them up in such a way that they know that there's a God in this universe who created them in his very image and in spite of their sin, desires to love them with an everlasting love that does not know any sort of limit. And we're supposed to offer to them a community and a fellowship and a body Body and a place to belong in such a way that erases, and it's hard, erases the pain of the past and restores their faith, not only in Christ, but in the fact that there's a Christian community that they are called to. When people know that we are Christ's disciples by our love, then ultimately what they get to see is that they are loved by Christ and the bonus is that they may begin to love him too. Spoiler alert, and let me just lay all the cards out on the table. Pour all the marbles out of the jar. That would be a messy mess. Here it is. We want your marriage to win. 
so that it can represent Jesus in the world. We want the way that we raise all of our kids to win so that it represents Jesus in the world. We want this to be a loving, supporting, encouraging fellowship of believers that others can't wait to be a part of because we know that that's the best environment for them to see that they are dearly loved by God, chosen to be his child, and forever loved in such a way that calls them to be that kind of lasting love for other people in the world too. 1 Peter 2, 30 years after Jesus had washed his feet, he writes a letter to a dispersed church that's scattered around the Roman Empire to encourage believers in Jesus of how they're supposed to live out this calling in complete and utter turmoil. And if we're going through anything that we think is bad right here in the United States of America, let's just go back to the early church and look at what they faced. Let's go to the thriving church around the world. The fastest growing one on this planet right now is in Iran. You want to talk about where it's hard to be a believer? Oh, we have a really difficult election and my neighbors aren't nice. Come on. Like there are people who are loving others well in contexts that we could not stomach. And that's the people that Peter's writing to. And he says this, hey, live such good lives Love each other so well. Live such good lives among the pagans. And that's not a mean word. He's just calling people that don't believe in God. Hey, live such good lives among people that don't believe in God that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, and they will, we get mad when we're accused of doing wrong. Let's just be honest. Well, that's not the way to show love. That even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they can somehow see your good deeds and what? pat you on the back and tell you you're a great disciple? Yeah, but it's more than that. They can glorify God on the day that he visits. We want them to see Jesus. We did a marriage series because we want your kids to see Jesus. We did a marriage series because we want the world around us to see Jesus. We've talked about love and all of our relationships and our parenting and in our friendships and our neighbors down the street and our coworkers across the hall. We've talked about love this series because we want people to see Jesus. And on the night that he was arrested, he took elements that they had taken every holiday for all the years that they lived. If you're looking around the room and you're like, oh, I forgot to get the elements, there's a whole table in the back. This is like a kitchen. If you need to get something, you're just like, hey, this is family, right? Just go grab what you need. He took common elements that they had taken their whole lives and said, I want to I want to tell you something new about this stuff. Hey, a new command I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, humbly, sacrificially, in service, with joy. Like, I want to love you so well that you take that love that I've instilled in you and pattern that to other people in the world. Well, this is it. It's a sacrificial love. And so on the night that he was arrested, he took bread Bread that was to remind them of the sacrifice that was made for them so that they could escape slavery in Egypt and said, hey, this is going to mean something new to you from now on. It's a new covenant. So this morning you peel the tiny tab away from the gluten-free wafer that you've been given and know that what you hold in your hand is worth far more because of what it represents. It's the broken body of Jesus beaten and broken and killed for every axe murderer, 
beaten and broken and killed for every divorcee, beaten and broken and killed for every person who uttered mean words to their neighbor during the last election, broken and beaten and killed for every person in this room who had a bad thought earlier this morning. I'm going to raise my hand for that one. Broken and beaten and killed so that we may know how much we're loved. And we take it today and as often as we do to remember Jesus. At that same meal, on the Passover week, he took the cup, wine. We've given you grape juice. And what you hold in your hands is worth far more than what we paid for it. This juice is representative of the blood that was shed. And it took all of it for me. And it took all of it for you. There's nothing that any of us have done, nothing that any of us are doing, and nothing that any of us could do where this right here would not be enough. There's nobody that you're mad at that this is not enough for you to forgive them. There's nobody that you've been mean to that this is not enough for you to restore that relationship. There is nothing that has happened to you, nothing that has happened around you, and nothing that has happened by you where this is not enough. So we take it today to remember the sacrifice that was made and to be challenged to live that sacrificially in the world. We remember Jesus. Holy God, today we pray. We desire to be a people who love the way that we've been loved with every opportunity that we have for as little as or as long as we have left to live. We know, God, that none of us, no matter how young we are, no matter how healthy we are, no matter how we've just gotten started, None of us know how long we have left to live in love. And we want to be a people that when others encounter us, they get to feel like they've been loved by you. Thank you for loving us in that way and for demonstrating for us what real love is. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family who may benefit from it. And make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you want to learn more about Rolling Hills, download Church Center, our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.